Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. So it's the spring 2016, another year has gone by, and another brutal Canadian seal hunt is about to begin. I have to tell you that this has been an ongoing frustration to the international animal welfare community and to ordinary people everywhere. So why does the Canadian seal hunt continue, and can we finally put an end to it? I want to welcome to the show Dr. Diana Marmorstein, Chairman and CEO of HarpSeals.org. Its goal is to bring about a permanent end to the massacre of harp seals in Canada. Welcome to the program, Diana. Thank you very much, Laurie. I appreciate your inviting me. Diana, why are the seals hunted? What products are derived from these animals? And who are the consumers? The reason the seals are killed is they um, have fur. And we all know that uh, there's been a long tradition of people wearing fur coats. So people basically make money off their skins and their fur. Um, To a lesser extent, they make money off their blubber, which is sold as a health food supplement, believe it or not. People Mm. refine it into pills that they sell as omega-3 fatty acid health food supplements. And to a much lesser extent, the flesh is sold as, as meat for human consumption. And there's really not very many people who are willing to eat seal meat. It's mostly um, Inuit and uh, some Newfoundland old-timers. And the Inuit really have a whole different situation, which we can discuss. So the commercial seal hunt is mainly um, a uh, Newfoundland and Atlantic Canada seal hunt, and these are off-season fishermen who are making a few extra bucks, uh, killing the seals, and then selling um, mostly their pelts to be made into coats and mittens and boots and things like that. So it's, you know, it's off-season fishermen. They have, they make a living mostly from fish and crustacea and mollusks that they sell. You know, they, they fish in that area of Atlantic Canada. And then off-season, this is the beginning of, you know, before the beginning of the main fishing season, some of them go out and kill seals. Diana, we have all seen the brutal videos of the seals clubbed and shot to death. How many seals are murdered each year? It varies. You know, this is, um, as as the Canadian government has said repeatedly, they've kind of changed their tune over the years, but um, it is a market-based hunt, meaning that, and they're actually specifying in, in the last, in this year and the last few years, they're specifying to the sealers, don't go out unless you have somebody ready to buy the pelts from you. So it is a market-based hunt, and and it varies. And last year, 35,000 seal pups were killed, which is a, a large number, but a much smaller number than has been killed in just recent years, you know, a few years ago. So it's gotten lower, but this year uh, they're saying they're going to go back up because um, the main seal skin processor Carino, um, which did not buy pelts last year because they had stockpiles, is saying that they will buy 50,000 pelts this year, even though they still have stockpiles. So now we're looking at more like 60,000, um, maybe even a little more. And um, and these these are the ones that are counted. So these seal pups are killed and then recovered and they're, you know, skinned and then their uh, skins are sold. But this, as you mentioned, there some of the seal pups are killed with a club. Um, the majority are killed with um, rifles or shotguns, and so and the, these these guys aim for the heads. So they're they're on rocking they're on boats rocking in the water. They're aiming for the heads. A lot of the time, they just injure the seal. They get you know somewhere in the torso, and the seal slips away into the water. Those are not counted. If they don't recover the seals, they're not counted. So we don't really know how many total seals will be killed. But, you know, the government estimate is maybe 5%. They call struck and lost. That may be a low number. Oh, it's just terrible. Diana, is seal hunting part of native Inuit culture? It is. And, you know, the traditional subsistence sealing is not something that we have a campaign to stop. Um, But the government of Canada has tried to confuse people and confound the two types of sealing. And, you know, they've really 
promoted commercial sealing among the Inuit, and and that we consider to be, you know, just part of the commercial seal hunt. So we oppose the commercial seal hunt in its entirety um, without opposing subsistence sealing by Inuit who are just killing the number of seals that they need to kill to survive. These would not be pups. These would be adults, and they would use the whole body. They would eat the seal and use the skins to close themselves, and the blubber they would consume as well. Um, but a small number of of Inuit have gotten into commercial sealing, and the government's promoting it. Uh, the government's spending money, you know, to promote this taxpayer money, and and these Inuit actually kill the pups just the same way as the the fishermen of Newfoundland or Quebec. So um, they don't need to do that. You know, it's it's a way of making money. The Canadian government is, you know, the Canadian people feel guilty about what they've done to the Inuit in the past, which is not good. You know, they did some bad things to the Inuit, but we don't think that's the way to solve that problem. We think there are better um, initiatives to help them, you know, with jobs and, and with their economy that don't involve slaughtering baby seals. Exactly. Isn't it true that the vast majority of Canadians oppose the hunt? There have been um, a number of surveys and you know it depends how the questions are asked so the sealers will and the government of canada will conduct surveys and they'll ask very leading questions and they'll say things like if the seals uh need to be called because there's too many of them and it's done in a humane way are you in favor of it and of course people say yes um but that's not the case they don't need to be called and it's not done in a humane way so if the question is asked differently, and you know, Humane Society, I saw they've done studies, and when they've asked their questions, they they've used somewhat leading questions too, but not as bad right. as the government or the sealers, and and they found that the people oppose it. So, if if people know that it is cruel, that the animals suffer, and that the ecosystem needs seals, then they're not in favor of stealing. But we find that also there is that guilt and the government has also used the Inuit to create the idea that the seals not only need to be killed for ecosystem management but that Inuit will suffer if the seal um, slaughter is is banned uh, or commercial sealing is banned and so so there's a lot of Canadians who just feel very guilty about what was done to the Inuit and they are afraid to oppose Sealing, you know, actively oppose it because they're worried that the Inuit will, you know, then suffer economically again, and so that, you know, that needs to be addressed too. And it, basically, we're in favor of, you know, helping the people get past this. So whether it's the Inuit or the fishermen of Newfoundland or PEI or Quebec, you know, there can be buyouts for the fishermen, buying out their licenses. There can be other job and training programs for the Inuit, and all these things maybe cost less than the government is spending now to promote sealing. So, you know, it's kind of a win-win. Is the hunt economically valuable to Canada to any significant degree? Not really. You know, the, the actual pelt value is very low, and again, it varies uh, each year, but it's, lately it's been something like $15, $20 a pelt. Uh, just the gas to go out, you know, makes it not economically viable. But the government is putting money into it. Both the federal government and the provincial government of Newfoundland have been putting money into it, and so they're propping it up. Um, back in 2006, there were some things happening. You know, I think there was a lot of government propping up. We know that uh, there have been episodes where a lot of steel skins were burned and dumped, and so we think that the government was trying to, and maybe the industry, were trying to prop up prices and use that um, as a way to say, look, this is how valuable it could be. It has been in prior years, but that's all, I think, just fraud, and, and mostly the prices are in the you know, $20, $25 range for the premium pelts, and, and that's adding up to, you know, a few hundred thousand, less than a million usually, um, for the total value of the pelts of the, you know, seal hunt itself. 
and then they, the government tries to claim that there's other value, you know, um, related to the ceiling, but there's not that much money in the processing either. So it's really not valuable. And, you know, if you look at the amount of money that the government is putting into it, they, they put money into it in many different ways, from um, Coast Guard rescues to um, the marketing um, and assistance with marketing, assistance with um, research, development, trade. They're fighting the trade ban in Europe and, you know, trying to promote it. Uh, sealed products in, in Asia. So they're spending a ton of money, and, and they're really probably spending quite a bit more than the seal hunt is actually worth. So, Diana, there's a new prime minister. Do we have any reason to be optimistic now that Stephen Harper's gone? I was hoping so, but it's looking like, no, we don't have a reason to be optimistic. Um, and it's it's sad because the Liberal Party's platform suggests that they will do things differently. But that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing the same sort of actions. um, And so we just need to keep the pressure on. What can Americans or citizens outside of Canada do to help end the seal hunt? One thing that we can do is promote the boycott of Canadian seafood. As I mentioned, these people are off-season fishermen who are doing most of the killing. And so we can hit them where it hurts in their pocketbooks. At least boycotting Canadian seafood is a help, um, not traveling to to Canada, especially Atlantic Canada, will help, and letting them know, letting the tourist agencies know. They can go to our website. We have a lot of automatic emails that they can send there to politicians and the tourism board and things like that. And um, also just letting people know. So if they go to our website, they can order leaflets from us. They can distribute them. They can participate with harpseals.org in other ways and volunteer with us. So I think the first step is go to our website, harpseals.org, learn about it, and go to our help page and see what appeals to you, how you want to help. And you'll find many ways to do that and many ways to join us. Chairman and CEO of HarpSeals.org, Dr. Diana Marmornstein, thank you very much. Thank you. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Hello, I'm Linda Gray, and I lost my mother and a dear friend to Alzheimer's disease. Nearly two-thirds of the five and a half million Americans suffering from Alzheimer's are women. Join the fight to help find treatments and cures for Alzheimer's faster by registering at brainhealthregistry.org. We collect vital research information online for free. Please do your part. I'm doing mine. Brainhealthregistry.org. Tax season is here. Many of us are wondering how we can maximize our tax refund and get it faster. Jackson Hewitt CEO David Prokupek shares a few tips on how to make the most of your tax refund this year. At Jackson Hewitt, we're serving hardworking Americans, making tax season less taxing. And this year, you can have your federal refund loaded onto an American Express Serve account. When you do, you can get your refund up to two days faster than an IRS direct deposit. We're going to let folks pop into Walmart and pick up the refund for under 10 bucks. It's really a great deal. One of the ways to maximize your refund uh, this year at Jackson Hewitt. Are there any other benefits for getting refunds on the card? This American Express Serve card helps you avoid high check cashing fees. You also get $50 on American Express Serve card the same day you complete your taxes with us. It's our way of saying thank you. But the best way to get the biggest refund, for which most Americans is the biggest paycheck of the year, is to talk to a tax professional and make sure you get it right. For more information, visit jacksonhewitt.com. This is Rick Osick, president of Famous Footwear. Our company is working together with the March of Dimes through March for Babies to raise money and awareness about the serious problem of premature birth in the U.S. As a business leader, I know that babies born very sick or too soon cost businesses billions of dollars each year, in addition to the emotional stress on employees and their families. That's why Famous Footwear is committed to raising funds to improve the health of moms and babies everywhere. Won't you please join us in the March for Babies? Start a team today at marchforbabies.org.
I asked a few questions on the mobile app SpeakBeat uh, concerning animals, of course. Uh, SpeakBeat's this uh, great mobile app that lets you uh, interact with trending topics and news and ideas. And one of the things that it lets you do, oh, you have to you have to download it on iTunes. One of the things it lets you do is post multiple choice questions, and you can link videos and put images and just see what your friends are thinking about stuff. And you can also uh, do a lot of other stuff with it. Anyway, I uh, posted a beat. That's the what they call their question. Which is the cutest? And the answers were a dog on skateboard. Uh, 24% thought that was the cutest of my uh, choices. Uh, 11% said cat swimming in the ocean. And in that uh, question, I was thinking about the, you know, that happy dog's in Australia video, that's really cute, but there's a cat that's also swimming with them. That uh, was really cute. Wasn't that great? That was so cute. Yeah. Um, and uh, 55% said, dog doing flips on trampoline. And I think everyone knows, have you seen that video? No. That's really cute. Oh, is it cute? Oh, you have to, I'll show that to you later. It's really, no, really no great. No cruelty involved in that? Unless a happy, I mean, this dog is so happy. The owner jumping. wasn't like throwing the dog and flipping the dog on the trampoline. <laughs> just, just pure joy. Okay. And uh, a couple of people just weren't weren't sure which is the cutest. So that was pretty fun. And I got a little bit more serious with my next uh, uh, beat. How do you regard SeaWorld? And there are five possibilities here. Very positive, zero percent positive. Five percent of the respondents chose that one. Neutral or unsure, thirty-seven percent. Negative 42% and very negative 16%. See, I would think more people would respond very negative. Oh, well, maybe they don't know. You know, there's a general audience. They're not only animal people, a lot of millennials in this sample. Yeah. Uh, It does break it down by gender. And uh, for the uh, positive group, which was 5%, a vast majority of that group were women, females. Don't know what to make about that. Anyway, you can... uh, Go to speakbeat.com and download the app, and we'll throw out some more questions for you. Lori, there's a uh, study underway, a couple of studies from the University of Washington's Dog Aging Project, and they are investigating the use of a medication called rapamycin as a possible way of extending the lives of dogs. Have you heard about that? No, tell me. Well, this uh, medication is uh, thought to maybe increase protein turnover in cells and thereby could get rid of some of the faulty proteins that are being made through metabolism, which might contribute to aging. And it turns out that this uh, medication is used in transplant patients and it also can reduce cancer. And it's thought through studies on mice that it can extend the lifespan in certain mammals. So an actual a trial is being held and involving 32 middle-aged dogs uh, getting this uh, medication to see what it does to their lifespans. And imagine if that worked. Don't you think it would be popular? You bet. Yeah. Well, there are probably side effects on everything, but that would be really an amazing thing. And then everyone's going to be eating their dog medicines. Are these 32 homeless dogs or 32 dogs that volunteered for this study? Yeah, I think these are owned dogs who uh, filled out the release form and volunteered themselves. No, really, I think these are these are dogs whose owners volunteered them. And it's a small uh, pilot study. Uh, but imagine if your dog could live two or three or even four years longer. Major support for Animals Today Radio comes from International Society for Animal Rights. For decades, ISAR has been a world leader in the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and its moral, social, and economic costs. Please visit their website at www.isaronline.org. Lori, did you see the story about that cute little penguin and the guy in South America? Yes, that was adorable. Okay, so there's this uh, man, elderly man. He's a retired bricklayer in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and he rescued and saved this little cute little penguin who had oil all over him or her. I'm not sure the gender of this little penguin. Anyway, he saved this penguin who was languishing on the rocks in 2011, nursed the penguin back to health, fed the penguin fish, and then the penguin ultimately uh, left. But eight months later, came back and has been uh, doing so since 2011. This penguin bows down, presumably uh, down to the coast of Argentina or Chile, and uh, swims, the round trip is 5,000 miles, 
comes back every year, spends the rest of the time with the man, and they hang out. And they, the uh, naturalists think the penguin thinks the man is, is indeed a penguin. And they snuggle together, and he's feeding it. No one else is allowed near the penguin. The penguin will peck at other people. But it's like uh, he sees the man, and he just honks and wags his tail like a little dog with just delight. It's really cute. Every year he does the same thing? Every year since 2011. That's adorable. Yeah. Laura, you know, another source of conflict in the neighborhood is dog waste, dog poop on people's lawns. Yes. Uh, It's appropriate that the company Lawn Starter wanted to research this, and they surveyed more than 700 homeowners in five U.S. metro areas to uh, try to see about the top complaints that they have about their neighbors. And 9% named pets, mostly dogs, as their biggest uh, complaint by their neighbors. 9%? 9%. I would think it would be more. Me too. But uh, still, uh, they are objecting to uh, people using their precious lawns as a little uh, potty station. Even if the people pick up after their animals? You know what? They sort of don't really care. They just uh, don't want people to... What do you think about that? Do you think that's okay? Forget about the 700 people. What do you think? If I mean, the, your dog, our dogs, don't really want to squat on the asphalt, right? They need to get ready to be on the lawn. So, okay, we get a neighbor lawn. We've got our bags. We pick it up within a millisecond after it coming out. Is that okay? I think that's fine. I mean, what are you supposed to do when, when your dog wants to pee or poop on someone's lawn? You're supposed to drag them into the middle of the street? Well, I think some neighbors would like that. They would like you to have no dog or keep your, I don't know what they want. No dogs. They don't want their blade of grass stained at all. You know, I do think we have a neighbor who objects to that very thing. Anyway, you mean the, the neighbor with the huge signs up that say no poop, don't have your dog poop you on know, our lawn? We have that. Remember the elderly woman who put the sign? It was only for a brief time, and I was didn't have the foresight to take a picture of it when it was up, but she put a sign on her lawn that said poison on her lawn. Yeah. That can't be legal. That cannot be legal. Anyway, no, I think the biggest... So now object- that's our main destination. Yeah, that's right. We encourage the dogs to go yes. to... Oh, that's a beautiful looking lawn over there. I think the main objection people have is when dogs urinate on yeah. their lawn, okay. then it leaves the smell and then it, other dogs want to follow. So then it leaves At, a, right. a spot and right. they don't like that. And that spot, I've tried to make that spot go away faster with fertilizer or water or seeds. It just has to go through its life cycle. It's going to be brown for seven to 10 days, no matter what you do. And I will tell you that another element of the survey reported that more than 4 million tons of dog poop each year are not picked up. It's just getting incorporated into the world. So that's a lot of stuff there. But going back to the urine thing that you mentioned earlier, definitely we've got the smell of someone's urine on our bush right at the, right at the end of our driveway. Right. And our dog, walking out our very own driveway, wants to mark our bush because someone else left him a little gift. That is annoying. What do you do about that? So it's annoying when other dogs do it to our house, but you don't feel other homeowners should be annoyed by our dogs starting the marking? Our dogs are different. They are. They're special. Rita, you look upset. I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water given to him. You need to report this right away. What do you mean? You should call Animal Services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is properly taken care of. Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number? Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion they need to be safe and healthy. If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, report it to animal services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference, and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org.
There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier, too, without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home. Cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors. The key is to provide attention, exercise, and a stimulating environment. Play with your cat. It's fun for both of you. You can hide toys around the house, too. Just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed. You can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic. Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. I'm Bob Dorigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. Class action lawsuits play an important role in our justice system. They can make it easier for large groups of people who have been injured or harmed to obtain justice by sharing legal representation. However, a petition filed recently with the U.S. Supreme Court reveals that an alarming number of class action lawsuits are enriching the lawyers while their clients get almost nothing. For example, a class action lawsuit filed over a popular brand of batteries resulted in a payday for the lawyers of $5.7 million, but their clients got less than $350,000 combined. Put another way, the lawyers got 94% of the settlement money, while their clients got only 6%. That's only $0.05 cents for each of the 7 million folks who were harmed. Let's be fair. Compare that to the already high 33% charged by most of the contingency fee lawyers advertising on TV, and we can see just how outrageous that is. So how can this happen? Learn how by visiting our website at centerforamericatv.org. Thanks for calling Consolidated Credit Counseling Services. Can I help you? I sure hope so. I'm in debt. Is it credit card bills? Yes, I have two credit cards that I'm making minimum payments on and another that I'm behind on. I owe about $5,000. What interest rates are you paying? Between 18 and 22%. At that rate, it'll take over 20 years to pay off. Wow. 20 years? What Consolidated Credit can do is work with your creditors to lower your payments and reduce or even eliminate your interest charges. You should be able to pay everything off in three or four years. What do I have to do? Just give me some details and get ready to celebrate your freedom from debt. We're Consolidated Credit. We're here to give you freedom from debt. Call now for your free consultation. If I had known it was this easy, I would have called years ago. Call 1-800-897-8374. 1-800-897-8374. That's 1-800-897-8374. Consolidated Credit Counseling Services Incorporated, 5701 West Sunlight Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Not a loan company, licensed by New York Department of Financial Services and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation, Maryland DM19, Oregon DM80031. Do you hear that ringing? I've heard that ringing in my ears for over 20 years. My doctor said... The ringing and buzzing in your ears is called tinnitus, and you're just going to have to learn to live with it. The constant ringing in my ears is annoying. I've tried everything, and nothing worked. So I invested my own money, met with doctors, specialists, and certified labs. After a decade of research, we've developed Tenoxyl, a prescription-free, 100% natural and effective way to stop the ringing. And better yet, it helps me sleep. Trying to sleep with ringing in my ears is almost impossible. But with Tenoxyl, I started sleeping better in the first couple weeks. I'm so confident that Tenoxyl will help you too that I'm giving the first 100 callers a free 30-day supply. Don't let the ringing in your ears control your life. Call now and get your free 30-day supply. Just pay shipping. Take back control of your life. Combat the ringing and start sleeping again. Try it for free. Call 800-930-1669. That's 800-930-1669. 800-930-1669. Welcome back to the program. Without a doubt, one of the most feared animals on the planet are snakes. If you do a quick internet search like I did, the animals that people are most afraid of or who have phobias about, you will find snakes at or near the top of the list. One outcome of this, unfortunately, is that we humans turn our fear into aggression and hate. And that means killing harmless snakes in mass numbers. We've discussed contests aimed at killing animals on the show before, but we haven't covered the pathetic spectacle of organized snake-killing events. And even if you're like me and you don't want to cozy up to a snake, you probably understand the importance of snakes in ecosystems and nature. 
I now want to introduce Melissa Amarello, who is Director of Education at Advocates for Snake Preservation, ASP. ASP is a relatively new group dedicated to changing the way people view and treat snakes. Hey, Melissa. Hey, how are you doing? Welcome to the program. Melissa, do you find that people are afraid of snakes? And if so, why is that? Yeah, I think that it is certainly not everyone is afraid of snakes, but it's it's a very it's very common. It's close to the top things that people, at least in the US, are scared of are snakes. And I think if you think about our our lives and the myths and stories that we're presented with, it makes a lot of sense. Um when I'm giving talks on this topic, I usually throw up a picture of or a painting of Eve in the Garden of Eden. And that's a story that you know, a lot of us grew up with is the story of the Garden of Eden and the first sin that, you know, ruined paradise for everyone, ruined everything for everyone, was caused by a snake. And, you know, there's a lot of more modern stories where snakes um, represent evil or villains, you know, like Harry Potter, even Indiana Jones had a fear of snakes. Um, so, you know, these are things that are just, they're with us, they're on our minds, because stories are very powerful things. And yeah. so I think that that's a big part of it. And humans also have just a natural fear and apprehension of anything or anyone that is different than us. And snakes don't have arms, they don't have legs, they don't have ears, they don't have um, movable eyelids, so it looks like they're always staring you down. Yeah. Um, um, that plus the the myths and legends that surround them make it a really common and easily an animal that's easy for a lot of people to fear. Melissa, we wanted to talk about the world's largest rattlesnake roundup that occurs in Sweetwater, Texas. But let me ask you this first. Are there too many snakes? Is there a biological reason to kill off populations of snakes? Absolutely not, um, at least not with native snakes. And that is what the rattlesnake roundups are about. These are targeting native wildlife. With snakes, you know, their natural predators are still in place. I mean, a lot of things eat rattlesnakes. You know, we're scared of them, but hawks, eagles, owls, a lot of mammal predators eat snakes. Um, there are diseases that affect snakes. Uh, their populations are also maintained by the level of prey that's available to them. You know, sort of all the things that keep natural systems and balance, those all exist for snakes. So there's no reason that humans need to do these massive killing contests where we just round up a bunch of animals um, for fun and profit and slaughter them in public. So what's the rationale for killing all these snakes? Um, what they say is that if the roundups weren't here, there would be an overpopulation of snakes. But there are no studies, no data to suggest that there have ever been an overpopulation of snakes. Um, and because they're predators, diseases, all the natural systems are still in place for snakes, um, as far as we know, there's no reason to think that there would be an overpopulation of snakes without these, um, without these events. And some of the other justifications that they claim, um, you know, that these pose a great threat to humans and livestock are also kind of bunk. Um, rattlesnakes are venomous, but for people, it's completely treatable. Um, fewer than five people in the U.S. die every year from snake bite, and that includes people who refuse treatment and also people that get bit by exotic, you know, more, de more deadly species of snakes than what um, are collected for roundups. And with livestock, the USDA keeps track of statistics on what affects cattle and no cattle, no, there have been no deaths to cattle from snake bites reported to the USDA since um, the early 1990s. Um, and that's just as far back as we could research. It's probably been even longer because most ranchers will tell you that snakes are not a threat to livestock. They usually recover just fine from snake bites on their own without any treatment. So those justifications are also not real. So how did this event come to be? I mean, it turned into a virtual festival, hasn't it? Yeah, it has turned into a festival. And it's very much, if you set the snake stuff aside, it looks like any county fair anywhere in any small town in the U.S. or any 
quirky, fun little festival. I, I think at the time they started, which was in, it, it varies by roundup, but most of them were in the 1950s. There probably was more fear and less understanding about snakes and the threats they posed. And obviously attitudes have shifted a little bit. You know, we used to have large-scale eradication efforts for a lot of predators that people perceived as threats either to humans or to our pets or to our livestock. You know, I'm thinking about things like wolves. But our thinking has evolved on that for the most part, and we stopped doing that. Um, we just still do it with snakes. So I think that, you know, it was those sort of mentalities that, that started these events. And even though I think the organizers now, they're not doing it so much because they just hate snakes and that they're really trying to eradicate them, but these festivals, because they're in small towns, are in a very important to the local economy. They're huge. Um, with Sweetwater, the one that's, that's advertised as the biggest and most famous, their population is about 11,000 people, and they usually get 25 to 30,000 people attend the event. So the town swells. It brings in a lot of money. In 2015, um, it brought in over $8 million to the economy, and that's, that's huge. It's the biggest thing that happens there. That's a really important source of revenue. And so for them, it's now a matter of money um, and also their culture, their tradition. This is a thing they've, they've always done. And so I think it's, it's more those than they're really trying to control the snake population. Melissa, what happens in a rattlesnake roundup? That's a great question. So um, I should first explain leading up to the event, um, hunters, professional hunter, professional snake hunters go out uh, in the fall and winter and they go to dens where snakes are overwintering. You know, they usually spend the winter um, underground. They pour gasoline in the dens to get the snakes to come to the surface. They collect the snakes. They keep them often without food, water, or even access to natural light. Um, for weeks or months, they arrive at the roundup in an already weak and often injured condition because of the way they were kept. And then at the roundup, they are weighed, measured, because they're a contest for who brings in the most snakes and the biggest snakes. Um, some of the snakes are milked for their venom. Some are used in pre presentations that are supposed to be educational, but they present a lot of myths. Um, and then the, the final step for all of the snakes, whether they are involved in the other shows or not, is that they are um, killed. Uh, they're stunned with a bolt gun, decapitated, and then they are processed. So they, they skin them, um, and then they use the meat for, they sell it for food. Um, they sell the skins and make them into all sorts of products and stuff and um, and all of this is done in public, and in fact, because this is advertised as a family-friendly event, they allow and encourage people, including children, um, to skin the snakes themselves. Family-friendly event. That is incredible. Melissa, is it your yeah. goal to end these kinds of events? Well, sort of. So, I, you know, I grew up in a small town myself. I recognize and can appreciate how important having, you know, a festival like this, the county fair, it's a very big deal. And I, we don't want to take that away from them. Um, what we're asking them to do is stop killing snakes. You know, that $8 million figure that the Sweetwater Rattlesnake Roundup brings into the community, most of that money comes from you know, sort of typical tourist activities, hotels, restaurants, money people spend at the festival that's not buying snake meat. So they can do all of that. They just don't need to kill the snakes. There are already a lot of roundups that have switched to no-kill educational events um, and just, you know, actually tell people about natural history, how to behave safely um, in the wild when you're out in nature in places where there are snakes and, you know, other things that we need to be careful about. And these festivals are more successful even than the old kill model was. Um, they bring in more people, people spend more money, and instead of having groups like mine and other, you know, big national um, 
conservation and environmental groups criticize the event, they're actually participating in them and helping to promote them. So it's really great because a lot of times with environmental issues, you know, people are faced with a choice with a short-term economic loss or doing and doing what's right for the environment or not doing what's right for the environment. But in this case, everyone can win. You can keep your festival. You can do what's right for the snakes and do what's right for the environment, um, but still have the same you know amount of money from the festival. I don't know what it is about some people that makes them want to wear snake skins or other parts of snakes as part of their attire. I mean, when I see someone wearing a hat with a snake skin band or a rattle dinging from their belt, I'm thinking this this person's an idiot. <laughs> so, Melissa, what can people do to help stop this senseless killing of snakes? So, especially if you live near where one of these events occur, um, sending letters to the roundups, asking them to stop killing snakes and making it an educational event are really helpful. You know, even in places where the roundups aren't happening, there's newspaper articles that talk about the roundups. And a lot of them are still talking about the roundups as these cute little festivals with no mention of the damage to snakes or the environment because of the use of gas that is so prevalent wherever the snakes are hunted for roundups. And so, you know, write a letter to the editor when you see an article like that in your local paper and tell them that it's not okay. You can visit our website at rattlesnakeroundups.com. We have some actions that people can take. So we have a little widget there where you can send a letter to Sweetwater, the world's largest rattlesnake roundup, to let them know that it's time for them to change their festival to a no-kill event and get the facts about roundups and why they're not justified and why they should change. So rattlesnakeroundups.com is where you can find information about the roundups. If you'd like to find out more about who Advocates for Snake Preservation is and what we do, including our educational work, that is at snakes.ngo. Melissa Amarella, thank you very much. Thank you. This is Rick Osick, president of Famous Footwear. Our company is working together with the March of Dimes through March for Babies to raise money and awareness about the serious problem of premature birth in the U.S. As a business leader, I know that babies born very sick or too soon cost businesses billions of dollars each year, in addition to the emotional stress on employees and their families. That's why Famous Footwear is committed to raising funds to improve the health of moms and babies everywhere. Won't you please join us in the March for Babies? Start a team today at marchforbabies.org. Tax season is here. Many of us are wondering how we can maximize our tax refund and get it faster. Jackson Hewitt CEO David Prokupek shares a few tips on how to make the most of your tax refund this year. At Jackson Hewitt, we're serving hardworking Americans, making tax season less taxing. And this year, you can have your federal refund loaded onto an American Express Serve account. When you do, you can get your refund up to two days faster than an IRS direct deposit. We're going to let folks pop into Walmart and pick up the refund for under 10 bucks. It's really a great deal. One of the ways to maximize your refund uh, this year at Jackson Hewitt. Are there any other benefits for getting refunds on the card? This American Express Serve card helps you avoid high check cashing fees. You also get $50 on American Express Serve card the same day you complete your taxes with us. It's our way of saying thank you. But the best way to get the biggest refund, for which most Americans is the biggest paycheck of the year, is to talk to a tax professional and make sure you get it right. For more information, visit jacksonhewitt.com. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. A monkey, an animal rights organization, and a primatologist walk into a federal court to sue for infringement of the monkey's claimed copyright. Sounds like a joke, right? But it's actually a line from a real court document filed by a lawyer for a photographer who was sued last year by the group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. To make a long story short, a monkey in Indonesia took a picture of himself using a camera that a nature photographer had left unattended. It was hilarious, and the monkey's selfie went viral. Unfortunately, that's when the real monkey business started, and PETA sued the photographer. It claimed that the monkey, not him, should get any money generated by the photo. Let's be fair. I know our legal system sometimes seems like it's gone bananas, but I'm happy to say that a federal judge has just issued a tentative ruling upholding common sense. He says that a monkey can't own a copyright. PETA, however, pledges to keep fighting. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamericatv.org. Hello, I'm Linda Gray, and I lost my mother and a dear friend to Alzheimer's disease. 
Nearly two-thirds of the five and a half million Americans suffering from Alzheimer's are women. Join the fight to help find treatments and cures for Alzheimer's faster by registering at brainhealthregistry.org. We collect vital research information online for free. Please do your part. I'm doing mine. brainhealthregistry.org. You may not know this, but Hawaii is a hub of illegal ivory trade, and it's a thoroughfare to the Far East. A number of animal welfare groups are aiming to end this, and we have news about this for you today. I'm pleased to welcome back to the show Jeffrey Flocken, who serves as International Fund for Animal Welfare's Regional Director in North America. Hey, Jeff. Hey, thank you so much for having me back, Peter. Jeff, you helped write a newly published report about ivory trade through Hawaii, and this, of course, is part of the worldwide effort to deal with elephant poaching. Uh, First, if you would, describe the scope of elephant poaching. What are we dealing with? We're actually in the middle of a poaching crisis right now with elephants, as well as other species like rhinos and pangolins. Um, But with elephants, they estimate that as many as 35,000 are being killed every year for their ivory. That averages out to 96 elephants a day or one every 15 minutes. Um, So that means in the time of this interview, on average, an elephant would have already been killed for its ivory while we were talking. Hmm. And what's happening to the populations? They are being decimated. Mm -hmm. Um, There are estimated to only be about a half million or 500,000 elephants left in the wild today in Africa. So as this is a large, slow-reproducing, long-lived mammal, it cannot sustain that type of onslaught. Um, Many people predict if it doesn't stop in the near future, the elephants could go extinct in our lifetime if it happens at this rate. Okay, and the study that you helped write based in Hawaii, uh, what was that about? Well, right now the U.S. federal government is trying to find ways to address the ivory trade here in the U.S. I know that surprises a lot of people because most people assume all ivory is bought and sold in Asia, countries like China and Japan and Thailand. And while China is the global leader in buying and selling of ivory, um, the U.S. has a huge wildlife market. We're considered to have the largest wildlife product market in the world, second only to China itself. And a large part of that is, in fact, ivory. So the U.S. government, uh, under the Obama administration, has stood up with the president of China, and so they're both going to be doing something to address their ivory markets. Well, Unfortunately, the federal government can't do it all. Uh, Because of the Commerce Clause, they can only regulate commerce between states, not commerce within states. And we know that a lot of ivory is being sold in states. In particular, states like California and New York and Hawaii have been found in investigations to have thriving ivory markets. Well, last year, the states of California, New York, as well as Washington State and New Jersey all passed legislation to shut down their wildlife trade and ivory markets, which just leaves Hawaii, which, according to investigations in 2008 and more recently last year, um, is known to have probably the leading left unregulated market. So the International Fund for Animal Welfare, along with Wildlife Conservation Society, um, NRDC, and the Humane Society decided to look at Hawaii's online markets for wildlife. And what we found was pretty shocking. So we found that over six days in December, looking at just 47 retailers and individual sellers from Hawaii selling their wares online, over those six days, we found approximately 4,600 items made from wildlife products the vast majority of it being ivory products, ivory jewelry, statutes, trinkets, and such, as well as carved walrus tusks and scrimshod um, items made from elephant parts other than ivory mm-hmm. and from whales, etc. So what we saw was a thriving market going on with wildlife products in Hawaii, which many of us have been saying all along that this place is a hotbed for wildlife commerce. Now, bring us up to speed about the law and ivory sales. Is any ivory allowed to be sold? It's actually quite complex. Um, The U.S. federal government is 
closing many of the loopholes that currently exist in law that allows ivory to be sold between states. Now it's up to the states to look at their ivory and determine what can and can't be sold. There currently is a law that's been introduced in Hawaii. It has not passed yet. However, it's being considered by both the Senate and the House of um, Chambers within Hawaii. And that law does allow for some exemptions if it were to pass. Uh, For example, musical instruments, uh, many musical instruments like bowed instruments have little bits of ivory in them um, or other parts uh, of instruments might have ivory embedded in them. Those have been exempted if the product is antique and if it is less than 20% of the total mass of the product. So additionally, in Hawaii, um, traditional Hawaii cultural practices that have wildlife products have been exempted. Mm -hmm. So the decision makers and the lawmakers have been listening and talking with constituents to figure out what makes sense to do going forward. And the other thing that many people don't understand is that because it's making ivory and other wildlife products illegal to sell doesn't mean that they can't still own them. If somebody has an heirloom or a a relative brooch that's made of ivory, they don't have to give it up. It's not going to become contraband itself. It just means you can't sell that product. Mm -hmm. So individuals who have ivory are welcome to keep it. They're welcome to pass it on to their children or their heirs or to other generations or to gift it. They just can't sell it for a value. That's what this is trying to stop. The reason that it's trying to stop that is because the selling of ivory is masking the illegal trade. We find that gray markets are existing that have legal and illegal ivory being sold side by side since nobody can tell the difference. Right. And there is the challenge, it seems to me, as I'm reading your your reports. Uh, The ivory is made into jewelry largely. Correct. Uh, what we found being for sale in Hawaii was mostly jewelry. However, in other markets, you'll find that there's more um, tchotchka or little trinkets or parts made of ivory or perhaps um, more statues. It just depends on where it's being sold. But in Hawaii, we found the vast majority of it was, in fact, ivory jewelry. And you can look at these online ads and deduce that this is not legal ivory. Well, what we can't deduce is whether it is legal ivory. What we found is the vast, vast majority, and in this case, um, almost 100% of these products did not offer significant documentation to prove that it, in fact, was legal. We can't say it's illegal, but at the same time, if it's being offered without any documentation to prove its legality, well, that brings into question, is it new ivory? Is it ivory coming from poached elephants? And many of these places that we've looked at have already started being investigated by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service law enforcement, and they are finding that some of these products, in fact, are not being legally sold. What's happened so far in California and New York? Well, the bans are still relatively new, and there hasn't been time to go back in and do a survey yet, but we have seen increased law enforcement. What law enforcement officers told us is it's always easier to enforce a ban because there'll no longer be that gray area, that question of legality when they see ivory for sale. They know it's either legal or illegal. If there's a ban, it's illegal. That enables them to go in and arrest people and stop the sale of these products. Jeffrey, so this report has now been published, this snapshot report. What happens now? Well, now we're all holding our breath, waiting to see if Hawaii will, in fact, pass this ban. We know it's supported by by far the majority of Hawaii residents. Um, I was there all last week, actually, going to different legislators and talking about the bill. I was joined by local Hawaiian celebrities like Henry Capono, the musician, as well as Boom Gaspar, the keyboardist from Pearl Jam who lives on the islands, Mm -hmm. and Lynn Fleetwood, former wife of Mick Fleetwood, all of whom were going around and talking about how important this man is to them as Hawaiians and people living on Hawaii who want the reputation for their state to be one of where wildlife is safe and protected. We'll be following this. Thank you very much for the report. Thank you. This is Peter Spiegel encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. The animals.